When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get everything you need to keep your pets happy and healthy at Menards. Feed your canine companion the best with chicken soup for the soul. Their dog food is made with real quality ingredients. It provides well-balanced nutrition for supporting happy, healthy pets. Explore all our pet products in-store and on Menards.com. And check out more of our great deals going on now at Menards. Welcome to Lit Up. This episode, we have the beloved British cultural critic and writer Olivia Lang, who was most recently best known for The Lonely City. It was an investigation into loneliness by way of the iconic artists Andy Warhol, Edward Hopper, and more. But we are here today to talk to her about her new book. It's a real time novel set in the summer of 2017. The book draws from her own life, um, what it's like to be an artist adjusting to married life, and what it's like to be a person in this moment, in our political climate, where every tweet or every update feels like, you know, the world might end. Somehow it seemed fitting that I got to interview Olivia at her publishers, which was right across from the New York Public Library. So I was able to have the great view of the New York Public Library, but Olivia said that she might be too distracted by the people outside. So I was looking at the New York Public Library. She was looking at me. I have to admit, it's one of my favorite episodes. We go everywhere and I am just counting down the months or the years until I can speak with her again. It's my great pleasure to be sitting opposite the New York Public Library with Olivia Lang. And we're here opposite the New York Public Library, which seems like a fitting place to be talking to someone who's written probably my favourite novel of the year. <gasps> um, I'm screaming silently. <laughs> so, oh, I love The Lonely City so much too and... We're in New York, obviously, and I have to tell you that on Saturday night, I sat at home alone and I kind of reread the notes I had of your book. And at the same time, I Googled Kathy Acker videos. Oh, wow. And it was, you know, when you just have done the right thing, I was like, Mm. this is my pure pleasure. I'm getting to read your work Without actually, then I became a sleuth trying to work out which was Kathy Acker's words, even though I could have looked them up. But I did want to ask, how did you first come to find her work? Oh, well, well, I mean, I'd been reading Acker since, you know, 16, 17. I had a, I have a cousin who's 10 years older than me who's an artist, so she'd always send me, like, Cookie Mueller or William Burroughs or Kathy Acker books. So I had this, like, source of great avant-garde experimental writing. So I was, I was interested in her work and I was excited by her work. But actually, if we'd been sitting opposite each other talking 
two years ago even, I would have said, oh, yeah, Kathy Ack is a really interesting writing writer. She's kind of dated. She's kind of an 80s writer. But because the world has undergone such drastic changes in the last year or two, suddenly all of her themes, you know, she writes about hyperviolence, she writes about Nazis, she writes about abortion, she writes about sexual politics, she writes about sexual violence, like all of the things that her, are her themes are suddenly back in the headlines and back in the sort of daily discourse. And so she felt suddenly again like a very urgent writer. And I heard and read that you are also writing a book about the body. And it almost feels like a lot of Kathy Acker's work can feed into that book too. Is Absolutely. that happening? That really is happening. Yeah, that that's a book that... Um, the sort of the backstory to Crudo is that I was finding that book very, very hard to write. And I realised that I was trying to write something very reflective, like my nonfiction books tend to be. And I was too agitated by everything that was happening. So Crudo is like an expression of my agitation. But it really fed out of the stuff I was thinking about bodies and bodies and violence in particular, and illness and bodies. So Kathy Acker got breast cancer and died of breast cancer. She refused mainstream treatment and she died very young. And she and Susan Sontag are in the body book as um, sort of the characters that I talk about in terms of illness and the body. So she sort of appears in different ways in my work. And so it's 2017, you're struggling to write this other book and the world goes mad, feels like it's going mad. And Crudo is a reaction to that. What day did you start writing and how did you know today is the day? Help, pass it over and I'll tell help, you because help. it is the day. Oh, I yeah. think is that it it's the something 17th? like August the... Oh, the oh, no, opening May 13th? The book. No, because that bit is back. So it starts on the 2nd of August 2017, now it says. And that was the day that I started writing. So I had this idea and this was an idea that wasn't necessarily going to be, in fact, wasn't going to be published. I was doing it as my own personal experiment. And I just decided that I'd write down everything that was happening from the 2nd of August onward and try and record the sort of turbulence of my internal life I was about to get married and the turbulence of the world outside. But rather than doing it from a first person or as a diary, I do it from the perspective of this character, which is Kathy Acker, but Kathy Acker brought forward into the 21st century. So she's sort of a hybrid. Kathy, the character of Crudo, is partly Kathy Acker and partly me. I listened to you on a fabulous podcast with your friend Elizabeth Day. Oh my gosh, about failure and things. And were we crying? We probably yeah, were. I'm sure there was there was so much laughter and tears. But what I loved, you know, I think you talked about how most of your books have come out of a breakup and this very kind of potent <laughs> time where you're trying to articulate your feelings. Yeah, um, and I don't want to my I, poor exes. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to delve into this one because I have a sense of who is who now yeah. from that opening. But can you talk about that need to articulate maybe, you know, from the past books and also then how do you needed to articulate this crazy time yeah. you were in? I think um, in some ways it's not even that visible in the books. It's There's often a moment at the beginning where I'm saying like to the river and the Lonely City explicitly break, begin with a breakup, but it's not like I'm then using the book to sort of process my own feelings about mm. that specific breakup. It's more that 
the emotional or the sort of psychic state that that kind of loss puts me into always makes me want to um, communicate something. There's always that feeling at the end of a breakup where you feel like, but you haven't heard what I've got to say. And I think I've used that as a sort of driver for writing things that are hopefully more interesting than like, when you said this to me, I felt that, you know, it's not it's not that I want to say that, but I, I want to sort of use that feeling as fuel really for communicating something else about the shared quality of those experiences, the shared quality of loss or grief or with the case of Crudo, fury. I mean, this is a book that's really about feeling very angry, very anxious, very paranoid and despairing and not because of the, um, you know, individual personal circumstances of a life, but because of the political circumstances that we've all been suddenly and non-consensually flung into. This is a sort of non-consensual breakup with reality is what I feel like I was living through in 2017 in particular and I wanted to um, register my protest about that <laughs> I feel right? that yes <laughs> yes and I think in the book you talk about you know the the role of the artist is to bear witness but it's also to to stay out of numbness like to fight the numbness and yeah um, can you talk a bit about that and that struggle that we have? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny when I've I've just come from the Wyndham Campbell Prize Festival and a woman was asking me, like she, I'd been describing the book and she said, but where's the transcendence? Where's the transcendence in Trump and Steve Bannon? And I was like, it is not actually the job of the artist to transcend this moment, I don't think. It's the job of the artist to record it, but also the numbness thing is crucial. So in Crudo, I talk about the painter Philip Guston and how he got really um, obsessed in the 60s with the Holocaust, thinking about the Holocaust and thinking about how this great numbness fell over everybody, not just the victims, but also, he says, the tormentors, the guards. Everybody felt that they were caught up in this thing that they couldn't stop. And he was saying how... Um, incredible it was for the people who'd managed to escape from the camps that not only did they have to do the physical action of escaping but they had to work on unnumbing themselves on realizing that there were other possibilities or believing or creating other possibilities in that particular situation almost impossible in our own situation I think much easier and that was what he thought the purpose of art was to unnumb people to make people realize that the situation they were in is agonizing unbearable and appalling and then to start thinking about what to do next so that is something i absolutely ascribe to i think that's i think that's true that's part of the duty of the artist and we're also in a moment where i mean we're lucky enough to live in safe countries and we go from those hits of adrenaline, you know, like you say in the book, I think it's, you know, we all know it, it's 7am, kind of 3pm and then 7pm when we check in all the time. Yeah. Um, and I think it's tricky that balance between that and then going out and having a drink with friends or in your case in the book, maybe going and buying a pair of bright orange cashmere socks. <laughs> <laughs> and that, like fascinating queasy grotesque juxtaposition which I know makes some people very uncomfortable but but it is factually true like I could have written a very sort of heart-wringing liberal book that was just about the pain of others but actually what was interesting to me and so troubling to me was like the pain of others coexists with the pleasure like those things are happening simultaneously 
And what you do about that as a problem is urgently interesting to me and problematic to me, how you, how you deal with the sort of simultaneity. In a way, this is a book about simultaneity. And the way that the internet in particular opens up this portal so that at any minute you can see the acute suffering of other people. You know, I, I've stopped being on Twitter so much, but it would be like I'd wake up in the morning and turn it on and watch, pretty much watch lynchings, like see um, images of white policemen like tasering a black guy on his phone in a car park and these would see stuff from the refugee crisis see these images over and over again and the effect was this sort of horrifying numbness it wasn't actually making me more um useful as an activist or useful as a citizen it was just making me feel helpless and glazed and that's what this book is about, bearing witness to. It's, this isn't my book that sort of says, now what do we do about that? It's just bearing witness to this particular 21st century moment. And just going back to Kathy Acker about how she was looking at the world in that way, and, I, and you mentioned, you know, she got on a motorcycle in the 90s and drove across America and probably really understood this country more than, than yeah. we do. yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the things about Acker that's almost made her quite unfashionable for a while is that she she does see that level of sort of violence and stupidity that's there not not just in America but sort of as a part of dominant culture and she's very um, powerful about putting that on the page, putting the sort of hidden violences on the page in this almost gleeful way like she just slams it all down she's like I can take this like this is what it looks like I have the stomach to tell you what it looks like and I think there was a point where people would look at that and go wow not for me whereas looking at it now again in this moment in 2018 or 2017 it feels like this very kind of sharp eye looking at the realities of culture well, in the video I watched, and I'm just uh, utterly bewitched by her now. Yeah. I feel like I've discovered that she was the most eloquent, funny, I mean, all, all of it. But I remember her saying that she would stee, steal from other and plagiarize particularly work she didn't understand mm. as a way of kind of deconstructing it to try and find out what it meant. Yeah. Did you, in the passages that you pulled out um did you find some that you didn't understand that then you now you've kind of worked with them and been around them you understand more that is such an interesting question I think I think the answer is yes and it's funny the, re the reason I'm sort of quite taken by it is um that I was talking with the playwright Lucas Nath the, over the last couple of days and he wrote a play called The Doll's House Part 2 which is like the sequel to The Dolls House, this sort of like incredible bravado. And he was saying the way he wrote it initially was to find a, like a really shitty translation on Google of A Doll's House and then go through it and like translate it line by line into his own language. So that at the end, he'd sort of sussed out how A Doll's House worked and then he could work out what the next part is. And when he was saying that, I was like, whoa, that sounds an amazing way to work. But now you've just made me realise that that's kind of what I was doing with Acker. Like, 
whenever my character Kathy starts to write, whenever it says she writes, the next line is then a Kathy Ackerline. So I had this sort of mountain of Acker books piled up in front of me and I'd pull them out and, you know, find a line that felt like it responded to the moment. And it did make her work feel much more legible, but it also made me realise something that I hadn't really before, which is her work's so emotional. It's like it's always almost um, making these kind of maps of emotional landscapes. It's not realism in any way, but it is saying something about um, a kind of catastrophic world, but also a kind of catastrophic sense of self. And so, like, taking those images of, you know, um, terrorist atrocities or there's always, like, a woman a young woman walking through these sort of very violent cities um, maybe after some kind of coup or something. And the feeling that comes off them was so much this feeling of appallingness and horror that felt like it, it wasn't the same landscape as 2017 in my experience of the West, but it was very much the sort of emotional landscape that I and people I knew felt like they were moving through. So that it, it just opened the books up in a totally different way. There are some lines in Crudo where that are so violent. You know that one in particular where you want where you it's something about war, like let's just have yeah. war. And then when in the video I watched, she was talking about the British literary establishment, and she said, "Well, why don't why don't we bring bring out the bombs and bomb all public schools?" <laughs> to get rid of all the writers coming up through those systems because she's, she thought all the, you know, the great writing was science fiction writing yeah. and not, yeah. you know, she, I loved it. She was like, I wouldn't read Philip Roth. You know, like all this, she was like the neo-realist. I mean, I'm, but I thought it reminded me of the, the most violent passages or the, yeah. But actually the outrage feels like an appropriate response. Like yeah. I feel like when we're talking about the numbing, I mean, even just walking down the street today, I thought if I took in everything I've seen between when I left home to come here, I should be outraged. I should yeah. be depressed. I should yeah. be in tears. Yeah. Yet we're oh, like pushing down yeah. and her work erupts things yeah absolutely it doesn't which is what to your see. whole book is about yeah and that the the way that civilization civilization depends on us refusing to see all kinds of things and the sort of the horror and the discomfort of the little crevices where you suddenly notice that you're doing that or that you're just turning away there's a bit in the book where i'm talking about sitting and looking at the screen and it's like horror story after horror story but if you close the screen then you have this other reality of well, actually, it's really peaceful and really nice, but both things are true at the yes. same time. It's not that one or other is, the two are. And then sort of ending by saying, love is the world, pain is the world. It isn't either or, it's both. And we have to learn how to manage that and not pretend that it's just one or just the other. I hadn't thought of that before. That I mean, of course, we're coexisting while awful things are happening. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I mean, constantly. it's so basic, isn't it? When I'm having an epiphany, like, yeah, of course, yeah, and but both are equally true, which feels like one is more true. Yeah, but I think both are equally true, and yeah. there's some need to be able to constantly bear witness to and respond to both, and that 
you know, I my 20s, I was an activist and I've experienced activist burnout. And I know that the idea that all you do is try and deal with the pain of the world is like, that's no way to live either. There has to be some way in which you can take pleasure, but also acknowledge pain and do something about pain. You did I think. S- no, wait, you did save a wetland, correct? Or a I saved a woodland. Oh, I saved woodland. Wood- I mean, not single-handedly. Yeah, actually two woodlands. I was on two successful road protests. So we lived in the trees to try and stop these road schemes going through very beautiful places in the south of England. And both of those were successful, but an awful lot weren't. And that sort of, that ongoing kind of struggle for something that, was failing was very painful at the time and now with the way that everything's panned out around climate change is even more painful and depressing. One, did you study to be a herbalist? I did study to be a herbalist. (laughs) I trained, I mean, I did a five-year medicine degree and then I practiced as a herbalist for maybe three years and then changed to be a journalist and that's how I sort of ended up as a writer. But my background is really in bodies. It's really about sort of the different things that can go wrong with bodies. Well, it just reminds me of, it's in your book and the Kathy Acker, kind of what she says, how she's interested in what is. Mm. And I also hadn't even thought of this concept, like she's interested in reality and what yeah. is, or things that don't have opinions yeah. thrown yeah. on them. And yeah. in that way, the body for her, and I'm assuming for you in this next Exists book, as a touchstone. Yeah, it. the body is what it is is yeah yeah and she's so interesting on the body you know her books are so much about extreme sexual experience of different kinds but also her own take on illness is so fascinating and troubling because she refused to believe that she needed to have chemotherapy she wouldn't do it and so she died very young and she didn't have to die she didn't have to die then and that's sort of awful but also awe-inspiring the the level of um strength of character to do that and to sort of say well I'm going my way with this and I have my beliefs about this is sort of extraordinary and didn't I mean I read I think in maybe the interview you did with Chris Krauss about how she kind of alienated all of her friends in the end and yeah kind of did whether that was the illness taking That's over. That's all around the illness, yeah. Because people would say to her, Kathy, please go and have chemo. And she would cut them off. That was it. She wouldn't speak to them again because she was so determined that it was to do with the pain of her childhood and if she had therapy and did, you know, took all of her alternative medicines and saw her psychic, then she'd be healed. So she had this sort of vision of illness as very different from a kind of conventional Western vision of illness. And um, Chris's biography of Kathy Acker is electrifying and is also like, I was reading that and that's what gave me the idea to start writing Crudo. So yeah, Chris is like, she has a, an amazing take on Kathy. Going back to your 20s. <laughs> Because I found, so I will. I knew I shouldn't have done that podcast because once I did it, I it's am, out there. I am going to link to it to everyone because it's just so delightful and kind of made me. I mean, I'm 37 now, so I can't. I think my 20s were a complete. I mean, bizarre. I'm not. My mum will be angry if I say fuck on here, but like it was a fuck up, like you're just not knowing who you are. And yeah. that's how you describe them, though it doesn't sound like it because you did save 
some, you know, important places. But what was that transition? Like uh, coming to terms with the fact that you knew you didn't want to be a herbalist anymore, Mm. being, you know, 28, 29 and... And how did you get that first job that it sounded like saved you? And what I did love yeah. is that you said, you know, when you know you were happy, you know, there are so few times in life, yeah. which is also like the first the, being married. Yeah. You're like, this is the best year. You know, yeah. when you know yeah. you're happy, it's yeah. so precious. Yeah. I guess you could talk about how you did get that job and then I guess how you developed your writing skills yeah. in that time. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm wincing, oh. physically wincing at the thought of my 20s, especially my late 20s, because I knew I was on the wrong track. I knew that I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. And it really felt like the world had just closed in on me. It was such an appalling time. I, I couldn't see how I was going to get back out into, you know, I, I dropped out so conclusively that I couldn't see how I was going to get back into the world. Um and I did um, like a year's journalism course. And one of the things that they made us do, and I'm so grateful for this. I was thinking about it the other day. They made us do work experience on a newspaper. And, you know, I just wouldn't have um, thought to like call up a newspaper and say, can I come in and do work experience? But because I was sort of in this context and this program that, um, and it wasn't like a great journalism course. It was just like a local college, but they they made us do that. Um so I went and did work experience on The Observer, which was a British Sunday paper, on the books desk. And I did a couple of weeks and then they somebody was away. So they asked me to come in and do another couple of weeks. And then that person who was the deputy literary editor left abruptly and they hired me, which was just totally crazy. Like the, the most sort of... I don't know, fantastic bit of happenstance really in my life because that just put me, it just, um, you know, catapulted me into a different world. Suddenly I was where I wanted to be and I really loved the job. That was where I met Elizabeth Day who was doing the podcast you've been talking about. And after two or three years, um, there was the financial crash and newspapers began to fall apart and I got made redundant. You know, they were just getting rid of people based on when you'd come in out the door and you know now it's about a third of the staff that it was when I was first working there and that was devastating really devastating I did used to tell myself when I was there like I am so happy I'm so happy and so when I lost the job I was so sad um and I can remember sitting on the platform at the train station and just really so it's the most sort of public crying I've ever done just sobbing and sobbing and again, again, it was the feeling of like my hold on the world is very slight and I'm just going to fall back down and not be able to find my way back in. You know, I hadn't gone to university. I didn't have that sort of straightforward background. So it always felt like I was kind of on thin ice. My CV was insane. Um, so I took a gamble at that point. I found an agent and I had a book idea, which was to the river. And I got offered another job as... Um, you know, a culture editor. And I said no to it. And I thought, if I can write a book proposal and sell a book, you know, I've, I've got my redundancy payoff. It's not very big, but it's enough for a few months. If I can manage to sell a book within that period, then I could get some money to write the book and that will be one life. And if not, then I'll get a job. So I had like a two-month window. And amazingly, somebody bought 
the proposal of To the River. So I had enough money to write my first book. And, you know, so it went on like really in a tiny handhold to tiny handhold way at the beginning. Yeah, it was crazy. I love the stories of just (laughs) the chance and the moments. Yeah, it was so much about chance. And I mean, maybe there would have been other chances, but it felt like luck is such a part of life and it's so frightening to acknowledge that and also the moments that felt like really bad luck actually turned out to have good effects (laughs) and into the river something really interesting you said somewhere it must be quite strange to have to talk to people and have your words thrown back at you (laughs) and you go and they're like well somewhere and you're like where the hell did you know you're lying you're making this up (laughs) however you can tell me otherwise but kind of in writing the book about Virginia Woolf um you said somewhere that it was interesting like everyone looks at her life in the context of the suicide like everything's leading up to that point but actually that's not the case yeah and it almost seems it's related to this book too because where yeah. you know I remember oh actually and you know you do now you know when you're with your friends and like what are historians going to write about this like yeah. how are people going to understand this moment for us yeah. later yeah but actually we're the ones in it which is why yeah. I love it and yeah. it's almost like you've written this historical thing that is like a time capsule yeah yeah, that's really how I was thinking about it. That, um, that is like my dream question because those are the two things that yes. I always... Yeah, I'm very happy about it. <laughs> those are the things that I always put together. So w- with Wolf, it's this weird thing where, you know, she was the great writer of the self in time. Like she's always trying to capture what it's like to live in the present moment, you know, haunted by the past, thinking about the future, but in the moment where everything is sort of open around you. So it's very strange that because of the nature of her death, what tends to be written about her in biographical terms always reads her life in the light of the way that she died. So everything's heading towards this moment of suicide. It's all like clues lining up. But that's not true at all. Right up to the end, her life could have gone in many different directions. And with To the River, I was really trying to capture the sort of the liveliness of her life and the sense that she had of possibilities and opennesses in all kinds of different ways. Like her last diary entry is about cooking sausages and haddock. You know, she's still kind of in the swim of things until she isn't anymore. And that sort of Wolfian project of like, how do you really capture the moment was so crucial to Crudo. But also exactly like you say, I was aware that 2017 was going to be written about in history books and they would understand what the consequences were of everything that we were going through. They'd know that when Steve Bannon resigned, well, that led to that. And then, of course, that led to that and so on. It would become this sort of narrative with a shape that was absolutely absent for us inside it, which is why I decided that I wanted to write it moment by moment and day by day and not edit it. Like, I didn't want to shape it. I just wanted to be like, on August the 13th, I knew this. And on August the 14th, I knew this. And to put in all those weird little details that maybe will turn out to be totally irrelevant or maybe will turn out to be like the key thing. But the point was, I had no idea. I don't know. That, I love that because even a year out from it, yeah, piecing together and going, oh, 
this was significant, you know, oh, when these things happened Steve, on the same day. Yes, which I'd, I'd forgotten. I was like, wow. Or even the one I really laughed was when remembering when Trump looked at the sun. Remember? <laughs> Staring <laughs> straight into the sun and without the eclipse glasses. Yeah. Yeah, I'd forgotten that one, actually. And then when it, you'd put it in there around the <gasps> other things, I thought, wait, so all the North <laughs> Korea stuff was happening the same kind of day he looked at the sun. Yeah. And then I loved your comment in the book. It's like, well, actually, we all secretly really want to look the sun up in the eye. And we yeah. do. Yeah. But we all laughed at him so much. But Well, it was that photo, wasn't it, where he was like, I will not look <laughs> be a smaller man than the sun. You're like, really, you're going to go blind? Although he didn't go blind, which makes me think that maybe we're being lied to about looking exactly. at the sun. <laughs> but it allowed, I mean, the book, because it's so specific to what's happening in your life, kind of tied to what's happening in the news or in the world. Yeah. It was it enabled me to remember. It kind of made me want to write more of a diary. But I was thinking, can you tell what it was like in real life to be at your own wedding and have the Steve Bannon, the resignation happen? Yeah, I mean, that was that was crazy and great. And I did leave my own wedding party to be like, I have to run upstairs now and just write this down because the, the sort of juxtaposition of you know, one minute we're kind of eating cake and drinking champagne and then I guess somebody checked their phones. But also somebody, who was it? Somebody had died that day as well. Was it Bruce Forsyth? He's like some British comedian and then everyone was going, he's the same age as Anne Frank. And so, you know, the this, this sort of oddity of the whole news thing like reached a kind of peak that day. It was like there was just really strange stuff going on. And I was just fascinated by the altogetherness of it. It was so, it was so odd. It was so much the sort of signature of that summer was that like the news just kept coming and it got stranger and stranger and stranger. And more and more frightening as well. I mean, I'm, I'm laughing, but actually, I think the Steve Bannon moment felt potentially like it was a good thing. But a lot of the news that I was writing down was like, I genuinely thought that when I finished the book, well, probably I'd die in nuclear strikes in the next month. I was really properly terrified about it i mean don't we think that we th I, even that new york times op-ed the anonymous one which yeah I, we all have many f strange feelings about i thought something's going to happen you know we keep thinking it'll yeah, be this, that we're on the brink but we don't yeah we won't know yeah yeah and i think actually the idea that it was going to lead to sort of all-out war, as as Cathy says, it's like it. what it really is doing is a kind of slow violence and hidden violence that's mostly affecting other communities. You know, it's about people who are refugees and asylum seekers and it's about cutting funding for programmes and devastating communities that are already in devastation. So the violence is happening. You know, there's, there's one bit where Cathy's talking to some like wealthy white guy and he's like well Trump's done nothing Trump's done nothing it's all been fine you're like okay nothing has impacted you but you're an English professor in England so like good for you but actually some of the effects of the environmental protection all of those sort of things being rolled back they'll be going on for decades and they'll be happening insidiously at first but it will become more and more consequential so again it was sort of trying to record that feeling of it's happening, but it's almost like a horror film. It's happening, but where's it happening? And I've heard you also talk about 
that a lot of your work is really about trying to kind of break down the barriers between the other. Like, nothing, what is so scary about the other mm. and trying to kind of dissolve those boundaries in some way? Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, generally my whole thing is opening borders. Like, I think borders physically should be open and I also think... Genre borders should be open. And I also think, like, the idea of demonising different groups or different kinds of people, like, that's so much what The Lonely City is about. Is It's about the loneliness of the individual, but it's also about how we create cultural and social loneliness by stigmatising different groups of people. And in New York, it's so visibly that it's the homeless, that you just have these bodies of people lying on the street and everyone ignores them. And it's so shocking. I mean, obviously, there's also homelessness in... England and every other country in the world. But I think in, in New York, it's so graphic that there are these people on the margins that are physically on the margins. On Fifth along Avenue. Along the streets, on Fifth Avenue, outside stores. And it, it's not so much the fact of that as the tides of people who absolutely aren't seeing them anymore that remains very shocking to me. Sometimes I find going home to Australia where, we, there, yes, there are homeless people, but you're not, it's not, confronting every day because I am, I mean, I'm hoping that yeah. I'm not seeing homeless people on the streets because there are less of them. But yeah. sometimes I go home and I, it's like this sense of relief too of not, but this is gross, like of not having to yeah. be confronted. I'm like, oh, what a relief not to have to be confronted by my own selfishness yeah. and numbness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that just reminded me of something else, you know, between The Lonely City and this book. I think somewhere, some, again, somewhere you said <laughs> that with The Lonely City, you know, revealing your loneliness, it's not, it's not an ugly trait, mm. you know, to have experienced loneliness, but in Crudo kind of unearthing the selfishness of Kathy and that yeah. selfishness of finding it really hard to be married and yeah. the proximity yeah. of this other person, I guess. How is that? What was that like? Kind of, I feel like it's like rolling something, you know, an underbelly yeah. up and it's yeah. like got maggots in it or something. It, that, yeah, it's so interesting because actually, you know, it was a great taboo to write about being lonely but actually I was really rewarded for it because people are really lonely yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, we're really happy to to talk about it and there was a sense of like this is a good thing to have done talking about selfishness is a lot less attractive I think that's been really interesting like it seemed to me that um you know I wanted to explore the ways in which I was selfish by way of this character who's really struggling with intimacy and the act of letting someone else in the act of sort of softening their own borders and loving somebody but also in this moment of our world that's very much about selfishness and about closing off to other kinds of people and building physical walls between kinds of people. And that, I think, is a lot less attractive for people to handle. And I've been really interested by some of the reviews that have been like, mm, I don't think specifically Olivia Lang is as nice as I thought she was when she wrote that lovely book about loneliness. And I just think that's hilarious. Like, I'm sorry if selfishness is uncomfortable, but I believe that we are all participating in it. Like, I think that is also shared, but nobody wants to claim it yeah. quite as much as like beautiful loneliness, really soulful. 
Well, one it's of funny. The, yeah, well, I, lo- I mean, that's why I love the book. I related to it so much. But one of the, I think it's up near the front, there's a line and it's just, was Kathy nice? Unclear, full stop. <laughs> and I just love, it's the kind of, love, you know, line that made me, made me snort. I was like, oh, you know, and I wanted to be like, was Angela nice? Dot, unclear. <laughs> like almost like that's... Like, yeah. it's very unclear. And I think that's important. Like, I mean, I don't I don't want Cathy to be like a celebration of selfishness. It's somebody who's really at the point of grappling with their own selfishness and trying to actually be a better person, but also not pretending, not pretending to be nicer than they are. And I just think that's like the bottom line beginning place for being a better citizen is being like, I'm kind of a shitty citizen here. I, these are areas of my blind spots. And, you know, there are books I can write that make people feel like they're better citizens or want to be better citizens. But I think it's also worth looking at the ways in which we're not because that's part of the same project. Well, it's kind of what Kathy and you are doing, going back to what is. Mm. Like it's a good place to start. It's a good place to start. Oh, and that's oh, in the video, which I also have to link to, she said some, um, she was like, I identify more with lesbians and the S&M groups. You know, this was in, the video was in 1986. Yeah. And she said, she kind of followed that up with, because they start from a place of just what, is happening like how the world is Mm. I mean I'm not quite sure how what she meant by that and if that is the correct thing to say about these two you know hugely complicated groups and there's a group she was in I mean she is somebody who was bisexual and had a lot of relationships with women and she was part of the S&M community so she again she's talking very much from lived experience there from her experience I don't think she means I identify with them as other communities. I think she means that is where my, my identification is. And I think that's okay. something that she was really thinking about more and more as she got older was actually the, this is where I'm sort of interested in. And in, in particular, like, S&M allowed her to to think physically about the subject she'd been thinking about all the way along, which is like what does it mean to have a body? What does pain, where does pain turn into pleasure? Where does pleasure turn into pain? What's agency? Like, that's a way, Foucault was also really into S&M and he's thinking about the same questions, like what is power, what is violence? And it's a way to sort of stage those intellectual questions by way, like very graphically of the body. Yes, yeah, she also talked about, it's this line that I thought is so for our time, like what would sex look like? if we lived in a non-hierarchical world. Which is I was like, like mind-blowing. Yeah, me too. I was like, whoa. Yeah. Like, wow, if we hadn't learned to do this from culture or even yeah. from books, like what would it look like? Yeah, and there's an amazing bit in um, Maggie Nelson's um, The Argonauts where she says, like, don't even talk to me about what a natural female sexuality is because the female sexuality that you are always experiencing is within this world, within a patriarchal, violent against women world. So anything that you're going to say about female sexuality currently is inside the system that is non-balanced. So, it, you know, it's sort of the same point. And it is like, what? <laughs> I, I mean, I read it and I thought, oh, men, no wonder they're afraid. Mm. And and angry and feel like they're going to lose their positions of power because it's all upending. Yeah. 
Yeah. And how much do we really need them? Yeah. Did you see the um, New York Times book review? Uh, no, uh, what's it called? The New York Review of Books cover that was the end of men, question mark. Oh, no. Like, oh, oh, is it the end you... of men? Oh, dear. <laughs> We've all been talking about that for a long time. <laughs> and they've just heard this little squeak. And they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> But I think, I mean, to that point, thinking more about gender and why mm. it, it's had to matter so much and how, I mean, for Kathy Acker, it was, does, in her mind, it, it had kind of d- dissolved in ways for her. Yeah. And you've, I mean, can you talk a bit about how you felt, Yeah. Um, you know, I think you mentioned that, you know, you were kind of the feminine, lonely girl, you know, in, in the lonely city. Yeah. And you're like, that's funny because I don't yeah it's not even how I identify yeah I mean and that's that was one of the things like so there are all these crossovers between me and Aka's biography that I found like they were very pleasing for me when I was writing they're not necessarily relevant for anybody else but one of the crossovers was Aka had said um when she had the double mastectomy like lop them both off I always hated them I feel like I'm a gay boy and I was like, great, I can write that line down, which is exactly how I feel. But it's actually also like on the record as something that she said. So there were these ways in which I could make confessions through the mouth of Aka mm. that was like very fun and pleasurable for me to be able to do. And I think, um, you know, gender is a huge subject and we all occupy different positions in it. But the thing that, and there's a lot of very depressing gender information currently, you know, but at the same time, we're in this moment where a kind of fluidity is being talked about and uh, taken up by a lot of different people that I think cannot be anything other than exciting. And when I hang out with kids or my friends' kids, you know, that sort of 14, 15, 16, they're all trans. They're all like, I have a fluid sexuality. And, you know, however they then what they grow up to identify as, it seems to me that that's an amazing thing to feel that that's, um, whether it's sort of fashionable or just permitted, like it's there, it's something that they're all tapping into because I grew up in a gay family with, you know, very fluid sexual and gender identity myself and it was a time of intense homophobia and terror. So it feels like that's one thing that is good about this moment in time. So did you grow up in a household where there wasn't any kind of posturing for men? Yeah, I was raised by lesbians, which I think is like one of the key things about how I am in the world. Like I didn't I didn't grow up in that system. I didn't grow up with those sort of attitudes. I didn't grow up with the man in the house. And also I grew up with like lesbians who were very much like we are in a women world like it there wasn't a sense of these are possibilities for this gender and these possibilities for that gender it was it was very open so yeah I'm really lucky to have had that I was really imagining what it would be like to grow up not imagining not having to it's just ingrained in me I guess to think of what the male gaze that the male gaze is important yeah, and that is validating and all these things. And I feel like it's this yeah. sense of like yeah. chipping it off. Like yeah. sometimes I'm just like, fuck you all. Like, or yeah. particularly about, um, I don't know, like sometimes, oh, 
like the comments on like what I should wear or yeah. smile or like the length of my hair or these things. I'm thinking, what is it to you? Why? Control. Yeah, it's control and yeah. I hate it. Yeah. Yeah, and you believe that it's a kind of aesthetic standard that you should aspire to, but actually it's control and making you feel shit and also to make you buy more. Like it's all very yeah, sort yeah. of straightforward. But, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I just want to say as well, like as having this sort of utopian lesbian childhood, I also grew up in the era of Clause 28 in the AIDS crisis. So it, it was very much like we were legislated against by the state. We, My mum was outed, we had to run away, um, Clause 28, uh, which was the law in England at the time, meant that schools couldn't teach that a gay relationship was like a pretended family relationship. So there was this sense that what we were was not okay. And I think that's the other thing that's been completely formative to me is like at some point you come up against the invisible wall of the state. And when I say the state, I don't mean like healthcare. I mean the idea that some people are okay and some people aren't okay and I was on the wrong side of that my family was on the wrong side of that and I think that is really useful to see it's really useful to see where those walls are and other people experience them much more strongly I'm a white person I pass as a woman so there are ways in which it's much easier for me but still I'm aware of their existence it's so interesting when people become politicized like when the personal does become political yeah and I mean, I'm thinking for myself, I'm like, so late. I was like, wake up. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, I thought, well, that was because of my experience. You yeah. Know? And I wasn't, didn't need to push up against yeah. anything because there was, I wasn't the other. Yeah. So and you're still not the other. You know, yeah. I can think other things, but I look the same. And yeah. It, just realizing then to have like compassion for, for, other people who's... and solidarity yes. for other people and I think that is I mean I'm always very negative these days about the internet but I think that whole thing of the internet just making you wake up to privilege the whole idea of privilege and copying to your own privilege rather than being like oh well I'm the victim of this situation or I see no problem here because the road is clear ahead for me like actually learning to see that has been like, crucial for my work and I think very illuminating as well as very sort of challenging for lots of people. So there there are ways in which social media has sort of facilitated an awakening. And certainly Me Too has been driven by social media. It's allowed people to come to some kind of, not consensus, but sense that, oh, this is shared on a scale that I had not realised at all. I mean, and because you've written about artists of so many different painters a lot and... Um, you know, writers as, as well. Do you feel that there is this common thread of feeling like they are an other and that they're at some point they felt like they were looking in on things, not not part of it? Or is that a generalisation? Yeah. I mean, much? I think they vary a lot because I think some of them are like real dicks. Like Hemingway is a dick. Edward Hopper is a total dick. It, so maybe they like feel some sense of individual pain but not all of them take that individual pain to be like Mm. oh actually which are the ways in which I'm causing pain to other people or excluding other people you know Hopper stopped his wife from painting he wasn't like yay the sisterhood Hemingway again like not the most helpful person whereas somebody like David Wonorovich long before the term intersectionality was invented is 
making links between his own struggle as a gay man with AIDS to the struggle of people of colour and seeing that very clearly, like he's talking about police violence, racial police violence in the 80s and 90s in a way that not all white painters were bothering to do. So he he could make those kind of connections. Mm. And I think those are the artists that I get most excited by whose politics sort of range out beyond their own personal experience. Talking about artists that have inspired you, I did... Ali Smith is a connection of yours. And yeah. maybe can you share what you learned about being a an artist from her? Oh, great question. Yeah, I mean, Ali is my cousin's partner and they've been together for a very, very long time. So actually what I was saying right at the beginning about... Sarah sending me like um, Kathy Acker books that I'd go and stay with them when I was sort of 17, 18. Um, and they're that much, you know, they're one generation older than me. And so they were always a model of like, wow, they're cool and they wear cool clothes and they've got cool stuff on their walls. But also just um, watching Ali come up from her first book came out around then I think First Love and Other Stories um, and then her first novel and sort of seeing how long is that like the last 30 years I suppose 20 years seeing her career but also seeing what she's chosen to do as an artist that she's chosen to be political she's chosen to be generous she's chosen to open doors to other people she's chosen to support young artists and I think having models like that in your mind and in your sort of physical experience, it's like, okay, there are two ways to do this. You can be like elbows out and I'm heading for something. Or you can be like, this is a community and it's kind of nicer if we're all engaged with each other. Not all, but, you know, if there's a sense of engagement and generosity and common interest, it becomes a lot more exciting. And also I think then there's a sense that you can really use art to do something political, which, you know, really matters to me and obviously matters to Ali and, and her books and then the other thing with her is she's somebody who's really just been pushing the experiments of her work book by book and that's extraordinary to see because I think it's very easy at some point to be like okay this is the kind of book I write and I'll keep writing them and she hasn't they've got more and more innovative and more and more um bold and expansive culminating now in the seasonal quartet where she's writing a book a year and allowing the contemporary to seep into that and to make it about that which is you know I wouldn't have written Crudo without the existence of Autumn reading that and being like oh my god it's about the Brexit vote was like oh you can make publishers publish things really fast and they hate it but they can do it <laughs> like this is evidence and I think that just changed the game that changed everything because it meant I could write a book and have it published within a year and nobody would have told me that they would do that apart from Ali <laughs> And here we are. And here we are. And it's still within a year. Like this time last year, I was still writing it and it exists as a book. So, yeah, lots of publishers were very cross, but they worked very hard. <laughs> brilliant. I'm so pleased. Thank you so much. Oh, what a brilliant what conversation. Just, I've loved it. This is why I live. This is what I live for. <laughs> and I know you're not on Twitter as much, but how can we all follow you to make sure we know exactly what you're thinking and doing? <laughs> I'm Olivia Language on Twitter and Instagram, but I find Instagram a much more peaceful place to hang out. So I'm more there. We'll follow you there. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
speaking to Olivia about her book and how she pretty much kind of plagiarized and pinched Kathy Acker's work, much like Kathy did herself. And it was somehow incredibly freeing and fun. It felt like the fun was back in how you could create a novel or a work of art. So I hope you enjoyed that. Maybe you felt the same. Let us know. You can message us or follow along at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.